0: As we've been looking at the different aspects of this great city, which is a woman and also the bride of Christ, the dwelling place of the Lamb, the carrier of the glory of God, it's obvious that this is is a spiritual reference that should not be forced into a containment of a natural understanding and we are pulling that apart looking at various aspects of it. We we have just looked at the twelve gates and saw that the operative principle by naming the gates according to the sons of Jacob-the twelve- and of course the selection of twelve being the number of government- we're we're looking at an order for the arrangement of the house. So in this great city or in this great representation of the body of Christ in its glorious presentation that fulfills the mandate, among other mandates, of carrying the glory of God, like Jesus did when He was on the earth and which glory He left for us to be clothed with, and finally we are clothed, along with the Lord Jesus Christ, we are clothed perhaps in principle reason because we are are being adorned with this glory that was uh, legitimately His but He has put upon the bride. We are arranged according to an order for the carrying of the glory of God because this time is one in which the preparation of those whose names are written in the Lamb's book of life, is for another thing to come beyond that age. Which thing is that Jesus hands it up to the Father in all the glory of His accomplishment, in all the glory of what reflects the rule and the nature and the character of God and all of the redeemed of the earth is now learning in the time that is yet to be fulfilled, the time from this point to be fulfilled, to the time when He hands it up to the Father, He Himself being subject to the Father, then God becomes all that God is in all of this glorious house. For this is what it's speaking of, the house of God, we should avoid confining it to a material form such as with streets of gold, but simply understand what these things mean. So we started with twelve gates and now we want to talk about twelve foundations upon which the wall sits. The picture of the wall, of course, is that it is imponderably high and immediately one is struck by the exclusivity that that creates. In its height it's the same as its length and its width, Uh, so the wall measures the wall encompasses the length, breadth and height of this city. And on it are the twelve names of the twelve apostles of the Lamb. Why? Why? What does it symbolize? It symbolizes the fact that all of this result, the result of a people called to God, purified, sanctified, made holy, adorned with the glory of God, all of that has... we know that no other foundation can anyone lay than that which is laid, which is Christ Jesus. How did Jesus lay this foundation and why are the twelve apostles of the Lamb, why do they have their names inscribed upon these twelve foundations? In other words, what contribution did the twelve apostles of the Lamb make to the ultimate establishing of this unimaginable truth in creation? That's what the wall Indicates an exclusivity that cannot be confused with anything else. This is, in fact, why God established the heavens and the earth. That in the end, He might have this person, who might be variously described as the bride, the body, the family, a city, and specifically a city of peace, a spiritual entity altogether, with dimensions of government, unmistakably so, 12 by 12 by 12. What role did the 12 apostles of the Lamb play in any of that? Why are they so prominently displayed? Let me show you the example that explains it. Now Jesus had fed 5,000 people on one occasion, He had them sit down in groups of 50 and He took uh, an offering of five loaves and two fish and He fed 5,000 people. When He was done, He required His disciples to do an extraordinary thing. They had had 12 baskets and when Jesus broke the bread, put it in the baskets, each one of the 12 was distributing food to the multitude of 5,000 men. Doesn't mean it was just uh, an audience of men, but there were twelve thousand men, or rather five thousand men. Later on, he also fed uh, seven. Uh, I'm sorry. He later on fed four thousand people. Two separate incidences. One in the first of the occasions he fed 5,000, the second occasion he fed 4,000. He also had the disciples collect up the fragments, which is an unusual thing. I am sure that environmentalists will jump on this and see its value that Jesus collected up the the fragments, instructed his disciples to collect the fragments of the feast. Those with an environmental orientation will applaud this because Jesus was against littering. But of course it's as silly as you get because as far as I know, bread and fish, over time, have a positive effect on grass so it doesn't hold up. But despite these speculations, Jesus Himself brought up exactly what I have said and it's the key to understanding the role that the twelve apostles of the Lamb played in the building of this city. So here it is, let me read to you from the book of Mark the eighth chapter. Now, the occasion was that they had just finished the feeding of the 4,000. In verse 7, it says, They also had a few small fish. Having blessed them, he said to them, He set them also before them. So they ate and were filled, and they took up seven large baskets of leftover fragments. Verse 9, again, Mark, chapter 8, verse 9, Now those who had eaten were about 4,000. Then He sent them away. Immediately uh, He got into a boat with His disciples and came to the region of Dalmanthia, Then the disciples came to Him and began to dispute with Him, seeking from Him a sign from heaven... I'm sorry, then the Pharisees came out and began to dispute with Him, seeking from Him a sign from heaven, testing Him. But He sighed deeply in His spirit and said, Why does this generation seek a sign? Assuredly, I say to you, no sign shall be given to you, to this generation. And he left them and getting into the boat again, he departed to the other side. Verse 14, Now the disciples had forgotten to take bread and they did not have more than one loaf with them in the boat. As all this food, they got caught up in the moment, Nobody knew whose responsibility it was to bring some food along, so they end up in a boat with one person, one hapless person, actually remembering to bring a loaf. Jesus then charged them, saying, Take heed, beware of the leaven of the Pharisees and of Herod. Jesus is off to something completely different, but they're still stuck with one loaf and they're interpreting everything they hear through the paradigm of having only one loaf. And they reasoned among themselves, verse 16, saying, "...that's because we have no bread." But Jesus, being aware of it, said to them, why do you reason that is because you have no bread? Do you not yet perceive, nor do you understand? Is your heart still hardened? Having eyes, do you not see? Having ears, do you not hear? And do you not remember? When I broke the five loaves for the five thousand, how many baskets full of fragments did you take up? They said to him, twelve. Also, when I broke the seven for the four thousand, how many large baskets full of fragments did you take up? I think it's interesting that in both references it says, large baskets. I'll come back to that. How many large baskets full of fragments did you take up?" They said to him, seven. So he said to them, "...do you still not understand?" And I'm here to tell you that most of you who have heard this still don't understand. I don't feel badly, unless you're given revelation, you don't understand, you can't understand. These are mysteries spoken to the Spirit. So what was Jesus actually telling His disciples? Well John chapter 6 offers an insight following the feeding of the 5,000. The next day after he fed the 5,000, or the night that he fed, in the evening he got in a boat and left, crossed over to Capernaum. The next day the crowd caught up with him and basically the question in the air was, when do we eat again? Because that's the question Jesus answered and He said, "...do not labor for the bread that perishes." He said, "...I am the bread of life, come down from heaven." "...Your fathers ate manna in the wilderness and have perished, but if you eat of Me, you will live." "...Eat My flesh," He said, "...and drink My blood, and you'll have life within you." And they were offended Then they went away. Jesus referenced manna in the wilderness but He also referenced something else, the bread of life. The bread of life was different from manna. It comprised of 12 loaves of bread, unleavened bread. The recipe was well established in the book of Leviticus. These 12 loaves was set on a table for show so when they were placed on the table they were called the table was called the table of showbread but the bread itself was called the bread of his presence and later on When Moses spoke of the bread of His presence in the book of Deuteronomy, the fifth chapter, he explained to them what God meant by the show bread, the bread of God's presence that journeyed with them in the wilderness. These could only be removed at the end of seven days and they may be eaten by the priest. by the the high priest and those who served in that function. They were not for ordinary consumption. Now then, Moses said of this, and this was before the temple, this was a thing that had to do with the tabernacle, the dwelling place of God uh, in the wilderness, and the table was put outside of the tent of meetings for all to see and for everyone to be reminded that they were being maintained and sustained in this hostile environment by the presence of God, which manifested in other ways as well- pillar of fire, pillar of cloud- but it was a daily reminder to this journeying people that they lived, moved and had their very being in God's presence. He was their economy in the wilderness. God saw fit to remind them of that at every turn lest they took it upon themselves to become their own supply and perish in the wilderness. At the end of that sojourn, 40 years in the wilderness, Moses is speaking to them as part of the second giving of the law, Deuteronomy. Deuteronomy 5, Moses says, speaking the wisdom of God to Israel, he said, God said, I brought you through this vast and trackless desert, reference to the vastness of it and the sameness of it with its scorpions and snakes, references to the demonic, to Satan and the demonic. So I had you navigate this journey in an environment in which you could not take care of yourselves. I brought you through this vast and trackless desert for these forty years to teach you this one thing so that, in the end, it will go well with you. What was the one thing? That man shall not live on bread alone but by every word that proceeds from the mouth of God. And Jesus said, in John 6, referencing that exact thing, He said, Do not seek for the bread that perishes, don't seek manna, free food in that way. I am the bread of life come down from heaven, if you eat of Me, you shall live. What is He saying? I am the personification of the bread of His presence, I am the living person who speaks the word of God. The word of God coming through me as the bread from heaven is what will give you life and life eternal. Now, what did Jesus see and why did He have His disciples focus on the twelve baskets full of fragments? And why did He say what He said the next day in John 6 over in Capernaum to tell them that He was the bread of life come down from heaven and they weren't seeking Him but that they should. Well that's because after they had eaten their full, eaten and they were full, of loaves and fish, when they collected up the fragments from that, there were twelve baskets full of fragments left over. Which told Jesus what? That they had not eaten one morsel of the truth He had provided for them, but they had filled themselves instead with the thing they preferred, which is the natural bread. But then, graphically, Here were the twelve disciples, each one holding a basket full of fragments of bread. And what did that mean? Jesus knew and understood that although they did not and would not receive the word from Him, and He would say it, Jerusalem, you who kill the prophets, stone those who are sent to you, How often would I have gathered you? As a hen gathers her chickens under her wings, but you would not. Behold, your house is left to you desolate. But what did He know? He knew, He knew that who He was being bred from heaven, typified by fragments within baskets, twelve in number, that He would be carried by His disciples into the world. And although they did not, Israel did not receive the word that came through Jesus, in fact they killed Him, that Israel, a remnant of Israel and indeed a remnant from the whole earth would come to receive the bread from heaven carried in the baskets, or the physical persons, of these twelve apostles. That's what Jesus knew. So, you may ask me about the seven. Twelve, of course, reminds us, tells us, of government. And the apostles brought the government of God and it's typified by Christ in a broken form to be distributed in the order of the twelve apostles. Early in the church, early in the, in the first century church, the apostles were gathered in Jerusalem and they said that there was a, a, a need that arose to collect money and to distribute help among others, to Grecian widows. And the apostles said, we must leave off the tending of tables and we must pay attention to the word of God and to prayer. And so they did and they appointed seven deacons to carry the responsibility for the physical care of the house of God, hence the number 12 and 7, speaking to a complete economy sufficient to supply all that is necessary for the body and also for the spirit. The twelve apostles of the Lamb were the carriers of the presence of Christ and the meaning of the gospel, the good news that God sent to earth in the person of Christ. Many of them paid the ultimate price for doing so. They knew that it would be difficult and sometimes, were, while the Lord was yet with them, they would say, "'Lord, we've left everything to follow You.' Because in pursuing Christ at that level, of conviction and faith, there was no time for anything else. You had to devote yourself to the Word of God and to prayer. Now it was said of the early church that they continued steadfastly in the apostles' doctrine, in fellowship, the breaking of bread and in prayers. So this imposing, representation of the final iteration of the house of God as this very exclusive dwelling place of the righteous, themselves being the dwelling of the Father and the Son, was resting upon a foundation that the obedience of the apostles established From the very beginning. Hence the word, they continued. The early church continued steadfastly in the Apostles' doctrine. This became the seedbed that ultimately would produce an entire harvest of the sons of God from the earth. The connection of the walls to the gate, of the wall to the gates is the connection of the promises of the Old Testament with the reality of the work of the apostles in the New Testament to cause, by the Holy Spirit, to arise this glorious habitation and dwelling place of the King of kings and the Lord of lords. That's why we will see that There will be no night here because the Lamb Himself is the light. But then we'll talk about, beyond illumination, how the kings bring their glory into the kingdom. But for now, we'll leave it here for today, having looked at the foundations upon which this wall These are, and it might be said, these are eternal foundations, unshakable. Heaven and earth would pass away, indeed, heaven and earth had passed away by now. But here remains the promise of God in glorious representation. Nothing of this earth could deter, mar, delay or otherwise annul these final realities. Indeed, what is swept away is every evil thing, be they demon or human, and what remains in resplendent, forever glory is this glorious inheritance that is variously named as a city, a body, a house, a dwelling of the Lamb that is clothed in the glory of God. Which glory Jesus left behind for us according to John 17, and which now finally clothes us in the same way it clothed Jesus, except that it is all of what is was invisible at the time now being visible. There can be no doubt that the Lord Jesus Christ reigns triumphantly and we, who have left all to follow Him and have eschewed other ways of living and being and have pushed away from us as any form of identity or purpose, our own will will be revealed with Him in the glory of His appearing. The final compendium of this is referenced as The New Jerusalem. Now, when we come back to further discuss this, you will see that the city, the gates, and the wall are measured by one with a golden reed. You know, it's not just the city that's the city and its people. Are measured because no one comes in who is substandard. And the certification that everyone belongs is attested to by a measurement which is the standard of Christ Himself. We'll unpack that the next time. The measurement of the people together with the measurement of the city, the gate, gates and the wall. I'm Sam Solon. I'm glad that you continue on with me as we unpack this. It's been a terrific journey. We're not at the end of it yet, but we're drawing near. I'll see you when we continue. Bye for now.